Today on The Black Goat, what's the relationship between creativity and rigor in science? And a letter about making people pre-register before you share your data with them. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alexa Tullett and Samin Vizier. Hey, How you guys doing? Good. Good. So uh, I, we, we don't always plug stuff, but I wanted to, I thought it would be good to start off by plugging Samin was, when we talk about other podcasts, which is kind of a cool thing that there's like academics and psychologists doing podcasts. So Samin, you were recently a guest on another podcast, Circle of Willis, hosted by Jim Cohn. Yeah. And so you guys chatted. This was, you guys actually talked a, a little while ago, but it just came out like last month, right? Yeah, we recorded in July when I was at Sips in Charlottesville. So I went to Jim Cohn's house and then, yeah, it just came out a few weeks ago. It's always weird when you record something a while ago. Like there was another podcast where they recorded a conversation with me in September and it hasn't come out. And I emailed them and I was like, I'm not sure I still agree with what I said in September. <laughs> I have no idea. Like six months or five months is a really long time. And, in replicability world that's sort of funny that like in in some but like i feel like there's one way to, of viewing it that that's like a long time like in just sort of normal life but in like academia changing your mind in six months feels really fast that's true but i think it's more like the political like if i like if someone asks me for an example of a controversial thing that's like being questioned and I say this example and in the meantime that example is like dragged through the mud and it's like beaten and then it sounds like beating a dead horse to bring it up again, right, you know, right. four months later or like, yeah. So I was just a little nervous that I said something that I wouldn't say now rather than more than changing my mind. I was more worried that like it just would sound insensitive now or something like that. Yeah, I feel bad that I can't participate in this because I never listen to anything that Samin ever does or read anything that she ever writes. Um, I, I see this my as mom. my role in her life as like the yeah. one person who just like isolates myself from all of the things that she does so that I remain less impressed than I would be otherwise. My mom called yeah. me and she was like, I just read your blog post. And she's like, what did Alexa think of it? And I was like, I don't think Alexa read it. And my mom's like, oh, I was like, yeah, like Alexa doesn't know what's going on in my life. Like professionally, like she doesn't like care about like whatever those kinds of things. And my mom's like, oh, so she's like me. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yes. Alexa and my mom are like not easily impressed by things like that. Yeah. It's good to well, have people to keep you It's just, grounded. it's just because I'm numb to it. That's all. <laughs> I'm like, oh, so you're I, on NPR for the third time? Whatever. I, I have another podcast to recommend that Samin wasn't on. So, yeah, uh, actually, I was. It's just not out yet. <laughs> oh, you were on Tatter, too? Oh, yeah. Well, no, but I, I listened See? to a really good episode that you weren't on. So Tatter by Michael Sargent, uh, who's a social psychologist and at Bates College. Um, and it, he, yeah, I just found out about this. I think he's about five or six episodes in. I listened to an episode with John Pfaff, who's a criminologist and it was super interesting like I, I learned all kinds of stuff about the criminal justice system that I, I just had all these assumptions like that the reason we have so many prisoners is because of drug sentencing which it turns out is it's a real thing obviously but not as large as most people think and that private prisons I always mm. thought were like a huge problem and Again, not that we shouldn't be paying attention to that, but in terms of like the size of the American prison system. Anyway, so it was like a lot of like my misconceptions about sort of what are the real things that need to change in the criminal justice system. Um, so it was a super interesting episode. So we'll link cool. that in the show notes as well. So Alexa, you should listen to that. Yeah, I definitely. So then, <laughs> then you can yeah. say you've listened to, you. to Michael's podcast without having to listen to Samin. I don't know yeah, if I'll, I'll make sure be on it, but he interviewed me for a future episode. But yeah, it sounds like a really cool <laughs> podcast. So I'm looking forward to listening to it in the shower. <laughs> uh, listening to yourself on a podcast in the shower is no, not no. Allowed. I don't mean the one I'm on. I mean the past episodes. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Um, so Samin, you have updates on Bear's health <laughs> yeah, that you yeah, want to tell I'm us sure about? our listeners are on the edge of their seat. Bear's 10 and a half years old and she's a giant breed. So she's like already way past her life expectancy, but she's been having some pain lately. So I took her to the vet and it turns out she has an anal mass. 
it's apparently a very <laughs> unusual place to have a growth. Um, so we're waiting for the results of that. So I mention it partly because if the vet calls during the podcast, I'm going to take that call. So you may find out live whether or not Bear has cancer <laughs> on her butt. This this is uh, this is why people are glad that we're just a podcast and not like a video thing. <laughs> you'd be like, "Hey, bear, come over." I feel like so so. I feel like I mean I don't know about like anal masses. It's, I you feel don't? like dogs have things. I feel like dogs have things go wrong with their butts a lot. Really? Is that not a yeah yeah? Isn't there like a well, thing they told where me this they was like, very unusual, so I don't know. Okay, maybe it's other butt things that dogs maybe have chihuahuas have things on their butt a lot and it's unusual for a big dog to have things on their butt no i don't know this, yeah. i think chihuahuas have the healthiest butts of all the dogs actually. <laughs> i mean they're adorable but i don't know if they're healthy <laughs> the, the, so we're we're probably gonna at some point get a dog because my son has been lobbying for a dog and and i every time i hear people tell stories about like stuff their dogs are going through i'm like why do i i mean it's like i know dogs are awesome and and i had a dog growing up and like we want a dog but it's just like i think part of it is i'm bracing myself for the fact that there's going to be bills and there's yeah. going to be health problems and there's going to be all the stuff to deal with i have to, to say with. compared to having a house a dog is way easier <laughs> like, i think i f- I think I feel about having a dog the way you probably feel yeah. about parenthood. <laughs> it's, uh, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, is the love really worth all that crap you have to go through? <laughs> but the nice thing about vets is they don't expect you to know anything. So like compared to like the plumber who wants to tell me what's wrong with my sewer line, like I took Bear to the vet and they're like, what kind of food does she eat? And I'm like, the kind you buy at Target? I don't know. And they're like, okay, cool. And they're like, well, we'll figure it out and we'll tell you what it is and we'll tell you what to do. And that's like what I want. You know, it, it is expensive. That's true. But it's not, there are like, at least, a, well, I'm in a town with one of the best vet schools in the world, so it might be different here, but there are experts and like, it's not, it's not, uh, it's, you don't have as much responsibility when, if they have a health problem, there's people who know how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas with kids well, or good. houses, I feel like people expect you to be the one to fix their problems. <laughs> I mean, there is this like weird social expectation that you're supposed to know what's up with your kids, which I find <laughs> kind of crushing, and you know, it's just that seems so totally unreasonable. unreasonable. French parents <laughs> don't don't feel that way. Uh, it's just the whole helicopter thing isn't it (laughs) well no now you talk you you talk to your mom uh way more than i talk to my non-french mom i think that's true but my but like my mom doesn't feel like it's her obligation to like check in on me or know what's going on in my life or things like that like i can definitely call her and she'll be there for me but it's not like if i if some major accomplishment happens in my life she's supposed to be proud of me and like tell other people about it or things like that like she doesn't even know most things that happen i'm starting to see why you and alexa got to be such good friends (laughs) (laughs) it's like the yeah it's like the one area where i'm not easily impressed (laughs) sort of deliberate um do you guys have your parents on social media my my mom is on facebook and she doesn't she hardly ever posts she does sort of, and she's like, I think she's got like a very small number of Facebook friends who are just family for the most part. But yeah, she kind of, she sees stuff, she'll mention it, but she doesn't actively post. My dad's not on social media at all. Uh-huh. I recently my mom's had on Facebook. My mom, I, I forced my mom to get Instagram. So now she follows me on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of nice. My like mom will she... sometimes call me to talk about things my friends wrote as comments on my Facebook posts. <laughs> so if you're <laughs> commenting on my Facebook posts, me and my mom are talking about it. That's hilarious. Yeah, I think my my mom has mentioned a couple of times, like, yeah, things that other she's like, your other people just seem so you know like impressed <laughs> with that thing you wrote. I'm like, no, they don't. <laughs> that's very nice. But you're my mom, of course. You think that. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Uh, well, should we talk about our letter? Should yeah, we yeah, uh, let's read this letter. move on this to our a, letter? This is a really interesting... Or, um, I mean, we could keep talking about anal masses. I don't want to <laughs> rush us along. I actually had a lot more to say about that. <laughs> 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 I'm not even joking. I um, In my uh, intro psych class, uh, for when we talk about critical thinking in one of the first classes, I show them a clip by the food babe. Do you guys know who the food babe is? Um, yeah, is she the kind of like pseudoscience-y whatever... Yeah, 
And she yeah. has she has a clip about um, castorium, which is made from. Well, she says it's made from beaver butt. Um, and she talks about how it's in like natural flavors and you should avoid natural flavors. Anyways, we talked a lot about beaver butts yesterday yeah. in class. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I learned some things. But anyways, I feel like we've talked about <laughs> butts I for once a had a time. student come to my office hours and ask me if I know what's in um, a particular kind of sushi. I can't remember what. And I was like, no, I assume it's some kind of raw fish. And she was like, it's the like either the testicles or the semen of some sea creature and i didn't believe her and then i was like googling it and so i was like why are we talking about this in my office hours (laughs) but there is a kind of sushi i can't remember which one it is but anyway i I really need to know that i'm going for sushi later today okay (laughs) we'll post it in the show notes I was I was joking that we weren't ready to move on to the letter, and you guys are like, "No, I have much more to say about the nether regions of animals and the gross things that come out of them." All right, let's do the letter for real. Okay, let's move on. Um, okay, so the letter begins. Uh, hey guys, I have a few data sets that I share from time to time with other researchers. For about the last year or so, I've been asking the people who are requesting the data to pre-register their hypotheses, if they have any and their analysis plans. This seems to work well, and it got me to thinking about the idea of asking, but perhaps not demanding, that we do the same for people asking to see our data for the articles we've published, i.e. the people who want to check our analyses, findings, conclusions, not just the people who want to use the data for our new project. One reason for doing this is it might make people feel better about sharing their data with others. I think one potential worry for people who get asked for the data is that they feel persecuted. I personally don't feel that way, but the sentiment is clearly out there. And perhaps worried that the data analysts are essentially free to p-hack too, able to try all kinds of things until they reveal a flaw in the analyses, findings, conclusions. Asking data requesters to pre-register their analyses might serve to demonstrate that the data requester has a specific legitimate concern about the original analysis and a specific plan for testing that concern. What do you think? Anonymous. What do you think? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I, first of all, this was the sort of the, the preamble, not the core of the question. But I do think, like, it's cool that the letter writer who's got data that they collaborate with a lot of people on is sort of expecting and doing pre-registration with that. And I, I think it, it's sort of a natural follow-up because the, you know, there's kind of a continuum of, right, like, there's, there's like, at one end, I'm gonna collect this brand new data myself, and you know we have a bunch of norms about that. And but then there's like I'm gonna I know this person has this data set. I'm gonna contact them about collaborating. There's like there's an existing data set on a website somewhere. I'm gonna download. And then kind of at the extreme is like a published paper, and you want to reanalyze it. And I think the kind of the the question of at what points on that continuum is pre-registration one useful but two should it be required or like what role does it play i think that that you know i think there's this whole continuum so and this person's kind of saying like at the kind of at the extreme someone's published a paper right they've they've made certain claims in the paper someone's accessing the data requesting it whatever should they have to pre-register right yeah it's hard for me to picture exactly what this would look like i was trying to think of um what i would do if I were pre-registering um, my my plans to look at other people's data. So I guess there have been times when I've been a reviewer of a paper um, and I've wanted to see the original data as I do my review. Um, and maybe that's, I don't know if that's exactly the type of situation um, our letter writer is describing, but I'm not sure what I would say. Like I think that what I'm curious about is in general how Usually what I'm curious about is how contingent are the um, results on the analysis decisions made by the authors. And so I don't have like a specific plan for, and maybe I should have a more specific plan. I don't know. There's a lot in this question. I have a lot of reactions. So I'll start with the most, the thing I disagree with the most, my most negative reaction is this this fear that people are going to ask for the data behind your published finding and then try a million things until they find something wrong with the analyses. Yeah, that's right. totally fine. Like, I mean, so like people who do like stat check or the grim test or whatever, if they want to see your data and then look at every variable, see if the results match up with what you, what's in the raw data, et cetera, find, 
and they detect one error out of like 30 things they try if it's an error it's an error like why shouldn't they I, be allowed to i don't so so there's i mean there there's error in the sense like you say you did an analysis yeah. and you did it wrong or something like that but there's there's also legitimate disagreements yeah, for yeah. how no, you could have I'm analyzed about, something yeah i'm talking about errors but but i think that i think this is this is where it starts to get tricky, right? And right. I, I think the concern is, so I've, I've seen this come up at the extreme with like fraud cases where people will say, look, you found this anomalous thing, but if you look at data in enough ways, you'll find yeah, something yeah. unusual and anomalous no, uh, about I'm talking it. about things that are like logically inconsistent or impossible. Um, so like- but that, that's something that you could then, I mean, if the person says I did my, da- my analysis in this way, you can do the analysis yourself and see if it comes out the same. Yeah. And I think once once you and so that's pre-registrable and if the person sends you the code sure, with the data Sure, but if you have like like hundreds of things that like that that you want to test, I don't know. I don't really care about pre-registering things that aren't subject to interpretation. But I agree. I don't think we actually disagree. I think you're, I'm just trying to talk about a very narrow thing. And then you're talking about a different kind of thing, which is you do the analysis with a covariate. I get your data. I try it with other covariates and it doesn't work with some and so on. And then I cherry pick those and say, look, you know, I can get it to not yeah. work. That's a right. problem. But there, I don't think pre-registration is necessarily the best solution. I think transparency is the best solution. I'm not saying I think pre-registration is fine, too, but. But I think that a more, just an easier across-the-board solution is to say, well, if you make the data public that, that are behind the results in your paper, then sure, someone can cherry-pick a different analysis, but, then the, but it's out there for everyone to try all the different ways, and it'll be obvious if you cherry-picked, and it'll be obvious if your critic cherry-picked, and in the end, we have to let all those right. voices be heard, and yeah. there's no reason to let the original authors cherry-pick, but not let the critics cherry-pick. I mean, ideally, none of the people would cherry-pick, but... Either way, it's the same problem, right? It's that readers need to be able to tell how robust either the null finding of the critic or the significant finding of the original author is to other mm-hmm. specifications. And I think imposing any restrictions on reanalyzing the data that are not based on like legal or ethical concerns only hard, hurts the chances of the truth or the most accurate version of the conclusion coming out. But I do right. think for the cases where the data haven't been published yet, um, or someone wants to do something new, then I think asking them to register is a good idea, but I wouldn't demand it necessarily, depending on how you feel, how open you are about sharing a data set. If you want to be very open and you want to promote other people using it, I don't think I would necessarily demand an analysis plan, but I think you could definitely encourage it or very strongly encourage it. But I wouldn't call it a pre-registration. I don't necessarily want to open that can of worms, but if People have published off that data set in the past. I don't think there's such a thing as a true pre-registration of a new question if it if there's any dependence between their question and anything that's been published in the past. But that's the situation I'm in with my data, and I do try to myself and ask others to register their analyses. I just don't call it pre-registration. We're going to have to have that argument yeah, some other sometime. times, I mean, because yeah. I don't think yeah. <laughs> I see. But I think on this on this question, I mean, the, ultimately the question is, okay, you here's the situation: you someone's published a paper, the they're they've been requested for the data underlying the published paper, not new data or anything like that. Should they sh- should the requester have to pre-register? And I totally agree with you that the answer is no, because I think that one people yeah people should be free to you know sometimes you might not know and and you might poke around the data and you know you weren't looking for outliers but you graph it and you're like oh this result they published was totally driven by an outlier or something like that and so so there's you know like you should be able to do that and and i think in yeah in the evaluation later on i mean this is where pre-registering the original will put you i think this is kind of what you're saying so it gives you puts you in a really good position that then you can say someone comes along and let's say they want to reach a different conclusion um, out of some, for whatever reason, their political motivation, they have a different theoretical orientation, whatever. If you're like, no, I reached my conclusion through pre-registered analysis and this other person just splashed around in the data until they found something that could confirm them. I think it's then, then, then that's, there for the scientific community to sort out. And if, if they can make the argument, look, this person pre-registered a flawed analysis and yeah, I didn't pre-register, but this is like standard or this makes more sense. They can try to make that argument. Mm-hmm. 
And it's it's so, up to people, observers of that discussion, to decide who they believe. And mm -hmm. the pre-registration is supposed to give you more credibility. Yeah. I think like doing this through institutional control, saying there has yeah. to be a requirement no, that you yeah. pre-register is not the way to go. If you're the I, critic, well, it's in your interest to pre-register if you have a specific yeah. right. alternative, are, alternative analysis in mind. But yeah. I don't think you should have to. Right. I think there are different reasons to want to look at somebody else's data set, right? Um, sometimes I think there are cases where people are, yeah, skeptical about how um, how much the results hold up to different analysis choices, right? Um, and in that case, the pre-registration seems less useful and less practical. Um, it's like, yeah, it's hard for me to picture how that would actually look. Um, but there might be cases where like somebody has a they have a different theory or they have a different hypothesis and they think that you know they would draw different conclusions had they done the analysis differently and in that case i can see the merits of of pre-registration yeah i mean i think what what we as a scientific community have to do is have a conversation about when we see reanalyses you know, how are we going to interpret those? Because but it's I no think different for, than for all of this, to, no, no, but I, th I think we haven't had that conversation yeah. enough yet. So, yeah. so I think that just like we have, you know, and it's, it's, it's not like there's not a manual you can go look up somewhere, but as a scientific community, we have standards for how we evaluate everything else. And we sharpen and improve those standards through discussion and, and all that kind of stuff. We need to do that with reanalyses of, of, data from published papers too because i yeah. you know people have raised concerns that you know these kind of secondary reanalyses uh it's they're open to p-hacking and and i think the the highest stakes and this is i think a lot of people worry about like they're going to get accused of fraud when someone asks for their data i think that's extremely rare but that's the kind of the highest stakes thing that people talk about that like oh yeah you can if you just say any anomaly is fraud um, and I, I don't think there are many people doing this, right? But this is the fear that people have. If you just, and but I think it's a real concern that you could like splash around a data set, find some different way of looking at it that either makes it look, you know, you could say, how could they get this pattern in the data, or just less extreme that you could say, like, oh, here's a different way of doing it. Yeah. And I think we need to we need to evolve to a point where we say, like, yeah, okay, a, a pre-registered reanalysis is more credible. I think and... what we're going to find when we have those conversations is the same thing we're finding with replications. Is that actually the same rules apply to original studies and to replications yeah. or to original analyses and reanalyses. We're concerned about the exact same things, about cherry picking, about self-deception, about motivated reasoning, about whatever. Yeah, right. And I think the solutions are going to be the same. And in a way, I think the concern about reanalysis and the concern about misinterpreting replications is way better. People are way sharper when thinking about that than when they're thinking about original analyses or original results. And so it's going to sharpen our thinking. And then we're going to realize that it applies equally to the original stuff too. So I'm all for having that discussion. My prediction is that we'll end up realizing there's nothing really different about the second analysis or the second study, the replication study. Um, and that almost all of the, the like ways, the rules for evaluating them will apply equally to all analyses and all studies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It'll be interesting to see what happens. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, so, I mean, I, to just kind of come back to the letter, I think it, it's certainly not the, you know, to the extent that there are, like, APA guidelines or other things about what are the ethical obligations for sharing data. It's not part of that right now. And I, I think we're, it sounds like we're in agreement <laughs> that it shouldn't be added. I do think, like, if somebody emailed if someone emails you to ask for your data, I, you should share the data unless, again, unless there are like privacy or other reasons. But um, it, I think it's okay publish to like data. to publish say like yeah, publish results, it. Yeah. yeah, I think it's okay to say, you know, hey, you should think about pre-registering your your reanalyses. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, um, and and it's also okay if if someone comes back with a different conclusion to make whether they pre-registered or not part of how you respond. Yeah. But I don't think you can, I don't think it's ethical or appropriate to, to hold back the data and insist on pre-registration. Yeah. And I think yeah. this letter writer was asking both about published data, but also about like, if you have a data set you're willing to share for new right. stuff. Um, and that's totally different because right. you're opening a collaboration so then I think you and you could can require set the terms of a collaboration. Yeah. Or you could strongly encourage it. You could, yeah. yeah. I think it's, it gets a but little tricky, I, but. I wouldn't, I, I would say if you're doing that, 
then you can't call it open data. Right. No, 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 for sure. Yeah. If people have to yeah. email you think, to ask for it already, right. it's not open data. But right. You can't call it an open data set no, if, no. if you're... I, and putting, I don't think this person yeah. would, and or at least no, 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 I have a yeah. similar data I think some set. People, and I, call it. I think some people want to make that part of open data, and that's a whole different can of worms no. that we probably should get into some other time about. Like yeah. people have concerns about credit and all these other things, right? Um, and that's yeah, that may be a thing think, that we sometimes do, but that's not open data. Yeah, the can of one of the cans of worms that opens is if someone if you say. If you want to use my data set, you're welcome to, but I want you to register your analyses. Someone registers your analyses and you're like, that's a crazy analysis or like that's the wrong way to analyze that. Then what do you do? So I think it, yeah, it opens a whole bunch of cameras. So you have to think right. deeply about how open are you willing to make your data sets already? It's not completely open. Uh, are you going to impose like editorial oversight over what people do with it, what conclusions they draw, if they do it right or not, et cetera. I think all those things are things you have to think about if you're going to invite other people to use your data under some conditions, Yeah, which I think mm -hmm. is reasonable. You're allowed to do that. That's your prerogative. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, uh, thanks to our letter writer for sending us a really interesting situation. And if you're listening and you want to send us a dilemma or a query or something else you can email us letters at the blackcoatpodcast.com or also if you just want to get in touch with us uh for any other reason that's our email we're on twitter at blackgoatpod we're on facebook facebook.com slash blackgoatpod and uh if you found us through some other way we're on itunes we're also on the web you can find us all kinds of different ways and if you rate us on iTunes, that uh, helps people find us. And so if you don't want anyone to find us, definitely don't rate us. <laughs> if you're like, I want those people to just like disappear and like die alone and or just the three of them huddled together in Antarctica, <laughs> nobody listening to them, then definitely don't rate us. <laughs> You're trying to right. spice up that interlude. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know how many well, different you know, ways can you like, find I to I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So for our main topic today, we wanted to talk about creativity and rigor and uh, what's the relationship between those two things. And so I've got a couple quotes that I want to read for people just to sort of set up the dilemma because I think there's, there's you know, a couple different views. So the first is from... Uh, Daryl Bem in an interview in a fairly recent Slate article, which we'll link in the show notes, uh, where Dan Engber was interviewing Daryl Bem, kind of looking back on the infamous uh, precognition paper. And at one point, Bem says, I'm all for rigor, but I prefer other people do it. I see it's important. It's fun for some people, but I don't have the patience for it. If you looked at all my past experiments, they were always rhetorical devices. Mm -hmm. I gathered data to show how my point would be made. I used data as a point of persuasion, and I never really worried about, will this replicate or will it not? So the, the gist of it being that <clears throat> rigor is optional. Rigor is something you could attend to or not, and that there's value either way. So here's the second quote. This is from an article that Roy Baumeister published in the Journal of Experimental Social Psychology. And he's talking about the sort of the relationship between creativity and rigor. The, the title of the article is Charting the Future of Social Psychology on Stormy Seas, Winners, Losers, and Recommendations. And he's kind of talking about the recent sort of replicability in open science discussion. And he, he kind of he sets up this idea there's kind of two kinds of scientists. Uh, there's, he says, sometimes called the careful and the interesting, the sticklers and the creative ones those who strive never to be wrong and those who strive never to be boring. And then he says, uh, the two scientific styles, so there's kind of like trying to be never wrong or never boring, the two scientific styles may have a trade-off such that the greater emphasis on never being boring increases the risk of being wrong, especially since counterintuitive ideas are generally more interesting than merely confirming conventional wisdom and vice versa. A thriving field benefits from having both types of researchers as our field collectively raises the emphasis on never being wrong, it will disfavor the restless creative types who emphasize being interesting even at the risk of occasionally being wrong. So, so you know, whereas Bem is kind of saying rigor is optional, Baumeister is saying that there's the, the sort of the rigorous and the creative and that they're 
working in opposite directions mm-hmm. and yeah. that the one there degrades was... the other or the one kind of works against the other. There's one thing that jumped out at me that both Bem and Baumeister talk about patience a lot. So Baumeister talks about patience a lot, and Bem said he didn't have the patience for rigor. And yeah, so I reread the Baumeister article in preparation for our show, and it jumped out at me. I hadn't noticed before how much he talks about patience. So he says, like, if we increase rigor, the winners will be those scientists who are willing to be patient and so on. And at one point he says... Um, I struggled to stay motivated to deliver the same instructions and manipulations through four cells of N equals 10 each. He's talking about when he was a young professor, a graduate student and young professor. He says, I did not know, I do not know how I would have managed to reach N equals 50. Patient, diligent researchers will gain relative to others. So he's saying he's not patient. Sorry, my cat is slowly knocking everything off my desk. Um, <laughs> I was wondering what was going on there. <laughs> He's like literally pushing everything off the desk. Um, so he's saying like, I wouldn't have been able to have the patience to get 50 per cell. And so if we raise our standards, then only people who have that patience will be researchers. And I think he's like the other quote you read also suggests he thinks that's correlated with creativity so that the impatient researchers are also likely to be the more creative ones. And so if we emphasize Mm -hmm. rigor, we're going to lose those people. Yeah. If they were just impatient, it wouldn't be a big deal to lose the impatient people. Maybe patience is a requirement to be in science, but the concern is that that's correlated with other positive qualities that you want in science that wouldn't, we would lose. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, yeah, just to sort of kind of finish setting up the thing, because I think this raises a bunch of issues, right? So one is, sort of as scientific phenomena or whatever, that what's the relationship between being rigorous and being creative? And then I think the second layer is the people that embody what, this is kind of a personality psychology question in a way, the people that embody those characteristics. Are there other things that are correlated with them and are we sort of squeezing out kind of differences in style, orientation, you know, motivation, et cetera? So and and then and there's a third possibility, which I didn't have a quote to set up, which is that creativity and rigor are aligned. Yeah, I was and so I think say. that's kind of the the space that we're working with this debate, which has been there's it's been a sort of meta part of the discussion for the last few years. Is like, is rigor going to harm creativity? Is it sort of orthogonal to creativity, yeah. or is it going to help creativity? Yeah, I think that's I, kind of the big question. When I first started thinking about our topic for this show and considering these quotes and things like that, um, I was sort of struck by the treatment of rigor and creativity as being in competition. And I understand the sort of rationale that, that leads to that conclusion. And I actually, I think back to when, you know, the replicability crisis was just first becoming a thing. And I remember thinking like, when I was considering what I should be doing research on, that I would have to make that sacrifice. So I remember thinking like, okay, well, if I'm going to prioritize rigor in my research, then the logical conclusion of that is that I should do studies that I know the outcome of already, basically, right? Because if I'm only going to, and this, this relies on this, uh, um, assumption of publication bias, right? So like, if I'm only going to be able to publish significant findings, um, and I'm going to do everything right, then I should do studies where I sort of, like, think that I know how they're going to turn out to begin with. And I thought, like, that's, um, and I think I had the same thought that, that the people that you're quoting had, which was that, okay, then I'm, that's a big sacrifice in terms of creativity. Um, but I think increasingly that these two things don't, have to be in competition for two reasons. One is like now we have ways of proposing really, really creative ideas and getting them out there without having to then make really bold claims about them, right? So, so I mean, one option for doing this is registered reports, right? If you have a really cool question and you have no idea what the answer is, rather than like um, only being able to publish it if you get the crazy answer now you can propose your cool question um and report the answer no matter what it is right so i think that that resolves some of the competition between um rigor and creativity and the other way in which i think that these things are not always in competition is i think that we're used to used to thinking of creativity in science and in psychology specifically as as finding like sexy counterintuitive results but i think that that's sort of um that's only one way to think about creativity and actually maybe we need to be sort of 
more creative in the way that we think of creativity. So I think of ideas that I find very creative, and a lot of them are ways to basically create paradigm shifts within psychology to improve rigor. So for instance, like ways to um, get labs working together on big ideas, like uh, the idea of um, like combining efforts. So things like study swap and many labs and psychological science accelerator, like those to me are extremely creative ideas, um, but they're completely aligned with rigor. It's like creative ways to accomplish rigorous work. Um, so I, I, yeah. I think that those things are less in competition than maybe they once were or yeah. maybe they're pushing. I think yeah. a lot depends on how you define creativity. Yeah. I, I was going to say, I think the, I think there's a really core question and, and it might be worth unpacking a little bit. Like what is the definition of creativity in a scientific context? Because I think some of this is people were, is people working from different definitions, right? Mm -hmm. So like in in the sort of creativity literature, there's often this kind of two-part, this is at a very abstract level, right? There's this sort of two-part thing to what you tag as creative. It's kind of novelty and value is, is in the really general sense. And what, so, you know, because something that's just novel, isn't we don't necessarily consider it creative, right? Just like I could have like a, you know, a, a you know, random algorithm generating sentences that have never been uttered before, but yeah. that's not, that's not going to be poetry or a novel or whatever. Right. And so, so we have some sense of value and it, it varies by domain. So in art, it's often these kind of aesthetic properties. Um, there, you know, and it's complicated what we value. And I think the, the idea of like, what's, what gives a novel scientific idea value this is really where the rubber hits the road because I think there there is this one sense in which it's kind of like aesthetic properties as well as sort of framing properties of ideas to some people are part of what make it creative like is it a you know and social pro so so things like is it cool interesting surprising these kind of aesthetic reactions we have to it is it something that you could convince someone who's not, who doesn't have any technical knowledge, the, the old, like your grandmother, if you mm -hmm. assume your grandmother isn't a scientist, which we shouldn't always assume, but anyway, yeah. So sort of like, is, is it interesting to a lay person or whatever? Um, you know, there, there's this maxim, which I have very mixed feelings about, like study the world, not the literature that people say, because I think that there's a good version of that, which is like study things that are important. Yeah. Um, and there is a kind of problematic version of that, which is like, don't build on previous literature and be cumulative and, right, and kind yeah. of make things kind of flashy and sexy. But there, there's all those kind of ideas. Um, and what and I think those are those are really interesting. But what they leave out is whether the idea is. Which is so, so critical in science, whether the idea is supported by data right like and that's that's kind of part of what you're getting at uh, alexa is that you know the it's like the, the idea of never being wrong well there's one way of never being wrong is never finding out that you're wrong because you're not using rigorous methods right, right. like yeah. and, and then another another way is like you can absolutely be wrong all the time because you're using good methods, you're finding out whether you're wrong. Right. And and I think the in science, there has to be part of our value. Like, there can be these other aesthetic considerations, but a big part of our value of, like, what's a good idea, hypothesis, conjecture, whatever, has to be ultimately, like, is it borne out by the data? And it's complicated because we don't want to say that people who have good ideas worth testing in a registered report sense, for example, aren't being creative. But I, I think that it's got to, like, how creativity makes contact with reality is really important in science. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, like, I see these, um, this idea of, like, okay, there are some people who want to be, want to never be wrong, and some people who are willing to be wrong. I mean, I just don't see that as um, something dist that distinguishes rigorous and non-rigorous researchers. Um, and I think it's a great goal to be um, open to being wrong and willing to be, to have lots of wrong ideas. Um, but one problem with the idea that like, yeah, we should just, we should just put ideas out there and then some of them will be 
proven wrong and that's fine is that like we don't have great ways of getting rid of wrong ideas and i think we're getting better at this but i still think that it's actually very difficult to yeah um it's it's really easy to introduce a wrong idea and it's really difficult to get rid of a wrong idea at this point i think that's where the crux of the disagreement is and i also lost you guys for about five minutes so i apologize (laughs) if i repeat anything you said i had poor network connectivity um i think that what i'm seeing the disagreement between the people who think that we need more rigor and the people who think no the cost to creativity is too high is just where you think the balance is right now. So I think yeah. if you agree that right now it's too easy to get ideas out there to get them into even textbooks or into the media or into meta-analyses and so on and they're taken too seriously, then you think we need to increase rigor and a little bit of a hit to some definitions of creativity is okay. If you think that no, we're doing a good job. Like that's one thing that Baumeister clearly makes as a premise in his article is that the system has been working fine. It can get better, mm-hmm. but we shouldn't throw out the whole system. Look, we've, we've done really well in that system and so on. Mm-hmm. So I think if you think that, then yeah, I think you would think the reforms are going too far. Um, I sent you guys. But I, a... I would, I would, yeah, I guess I, I get hung up on whether like how to, how to classify those ideas that turn out to be wrong as creative or not. Because I don't think it's as easy as if the data shows it's wrong, it wasn't creative, and if it shows it's right, it was. But I also think there, there is this sense in which, like, you know, throwing out, like, a clever, interesting thing that you can frame a good story around and then it's- finding some way to gin up some data to support it, whether it's p-hacking or whether it's just, like, a, a really, like kind of uh, flashy demonstration mm-hmm. experiment that doesn't generalize to anything or, you know, whatever it is. The creativity part I, is not I the have, specific I, idea. It's letting a thousand flowers bloom. I don't, I sent you guys a paper that based on our earlier conversation, I'm going to assume you didn't read. Um, <laughs> yeah. You don't follow my stuff, which is totally fine, but I had a paper, I have a paper in press. Oh, okay. At perspectives. And I actually cite a Jim Cohn podcast with Eli Finkel, where they talk about this issue towards the end of their episode. And they talk about this, letting a thousand flowers bloom, and they're worried that the reforms that are proposed are going to stifle that. And what they mean by creativity is letting, I think, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but letting individual researchers decide for themselves what they think the best practices and best methods are. So it's not so much the creativity of the idea, but the the freedom and diversity of approaches that researchers have, which would work fine if we took replications really seriously, if we were appropriately critical and didn't rush to the press and the media and textbooks and so on. I think, and so one argument I make in my paper is like, we have, we can't have both let a thousand flowers bloom and a weak self-correction system. So if we strengthen our self-correction system, I would be okay with letting more things out into the literature, even with, um, flimsy evidence or very different ideas of what good practices are than mine, Mm -hmm. but we don't have, in my opinion. Right. So I think that Baumeister from his paper, it sounds like he thinks we do have a good self-correction, like things, things in the field are working as they should. We're catching things if they're wrong eventually. And so on. He I think he trusts lit reviews and meta-analyses more than I do. So I think that's the crux of the disagreement, or at least that's like the most generous version of it that I can come up with. I have a less generous interpretation, not of those specific people, although I think I could attribute this view to Baumeister pretty, he says it pretty explicitly, um, which is more controversial. I don't know that I necessarily believe this, but sometimes I wonder if what Baumeister and maybe some other people mean by creativity is actually, they just want to be able to do research in an easy way. They want research to be able to be easy. Um, so like the not wanting to have 50 percent because that's just hard and it takes longer and at one point he describes like some research where if you had to have 50 percent it would be let me see if I can find the quote he says like almost impossible or something like that Um, yeah so he said he talks about uh, some of the classic social psych studies um, and says like staging a 1970s style experiment was labor intensive confederates blah 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 doing this for 40 participants spread over four cells was a big investment in time doing the same thing for 200 participants may be prohibitively difficult and i think we've just gotten used to calling certain things prohibitively difficult because we're just not used to putting that much time or effort or resources into a single study but why should we accept that standard and like i think i i'm very sympathetic to baumeister's feelings i have the same feelings like part of why i went to psych i think is because it was easy 
but it, actually we were wrong. And those of us who don't want to do it, if it's hard, maybe you just shouldn't have gone into science. Like it, maybe it just shouldn't be for people who want it to be right. easy. It's okay to want it to be easy, but then yeah. it's not for you. It's okay to say like, I'm not the kind of person who would do that tedious version of the experiment. Right. And I, I think like right now, I think there are, I think a big subset of psychologists who it would be justified in saying, well, if, if psychology is going to be this new thing that you guys are describing, like maybe that's not what I want to do, yeah. you know? And so like the, the Bem quote where he's talking about like using his data as a point of persuasion. Right. Um, and I think actually a lot of people are interested in psychology because they are interested in persuading people. Um, and actually maybe that, if you're really interested in persuading people, there are other venues that are better or other professions that are better. And I've, I've considered this. So I don't, I don't mean this as a knock to people who feel this way. Like I, I've considered this seriously for myself, you know, like if your goal is to convince people of an idea that you think is really important, um, maybe the way to do that is to, I don't know, become like a dramatist or a writer or something like that rather than like than using like data as your medium. Yeah, I think the I have I have trouble with like I think that there's there's a implicit hierarchy where the the valued part of the process is coming up like in the let a thousand flowers bloom metaphor like the val or I'm not gonna follow that one too far but like the value the sort of high prestige important your deep thinker part is coming up with the idea and the grunt work mm-hmm. is uh, Any not... Any robot could do it. Yeah. Right. And, and I mean, the, to put it, to just put, you know, rigor is for the little people. Mm-hmm. That's, I think that is a very common sentiment. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to, I don't want to necessarily... I, I think a more generous way of saying is I didn't essay, go but, into science to do that, right? Like, I no, wanted... but I, I, there, there is, I think the, you know, calling people who do replication second yeah. stringers, this yeah. is a consistent theme. And I've seen this on social media where yeah. people will say, oh, you know, like high people will say replications are important, but they're, you know, in this kind of boring sense, they're not like you well, know yeah. good science and, and we can set aside the replications issue maybe but the there's this more general sense that yeah rigor is for the little people the 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 idea like you're supposed to come up with the bold cool idea and and i think there is a style of especially sort of the in the history of social psychology that you come up with the bold cool idea you you frame it as counterintuitive as kind of having these important lessons and then you come up with some data that will, as a rhetorical device, the way Bam is talking about, and whether you come up with it through p-hacking or you come up with it through crafting a uh, verificationist experiment that has no chance of falsifying your idea or whatever, um, you know, that's... And, 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 and yeah. so I, I just really want to push back on the idea that, like, that's the creativity is mm-hmm. like coming up with the G whiz idea that can make you look smart. Yeah. I think some people, some listeners are probably thinking right now that this is a straw man that we're picking on Baumeister, but like nobody, they know. No, thinks... I'm not even thinking just about, I know, I know, yeah. but I, I just want to raise that point because I think some of our listeners might be thinking that, that we're like caricaturing the other position on this issue that we're like, and, and, yeah, we are. I am focusing a lot on Baumeister and so on. And I actually had a reviewer say one time when I on the in this creativity paper that I submitted, uh, one of the reviewers wrote by choosing Baumeister's absolutely ludicrous 2016 paper as the benchmark of people who argue for research freedom, the author is creating a straw man. And I think there's some argument to be made that maybe Baumeister's views are a little bit more extreme, or the way he put them in that paper is a little bit more um, simplistic than what I think a lot of people feel and I think a lot of people could make better arguments than Baumeister did for this position and I don't want to like caricature it but I do want to say that like what you're saying Sanjay about the little people you know rigorous for little people I hear that view expressed not as bluntly but it's very thinly veiled um, pretty often in, in in context where it matters in board meetings and things like that so if anybody thinks that it's a straw man like I, I think you have to that's that's a debatable point it's not obvious as a straw man i think there's a very strong case to be made that that view is not as much of a fringe view as we may think in our little bubble 
Yeah. I, you know, and I also like, I don't, I didn't want, like, it's great to use the Baumeister quote to set it up, but let's, let's maybe, I I don't, I want to kind of move past Baumeister a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think one of the, to me, like one of the, I mean, this idea is sort of like you come up with an idea and then you find a way to show it's true or whatever. That's one of, one of the things that when in Bill McGuire's work on perspectivism, when he talks about this, this idea that like, all hypotheses are both true and false. I think one of the things that I really like about that point of view is that it really highlights. So I'll, I'll pick on, you know, uh, uh, I'm not going to pick on because I don't think I did this, but uh, I'll, let me take a hypothesis for my own research that suppressing your emotional expressions le- has negative relationship consequences, right? That people who sort of hide their emotional expressions, it has negative consequences. So you can you can take that idea. And one way to approach that would be to say, um, I've got this big, bold idea. I'm going to come up with some way to frame it. So I'm, I'm going to like come up with a, you know, because people have, when I said that just now, I bet people listening were like, of course, that's true. But I probably could have said the opposite. I could have said, you know, like being able to hide your emotions is really important to getting through modern social life, right? I could have made the opposite case. And, and so you can like, I could, I could frame it, I could write like a really clever op ed or whatever. And, you know, a Gladwelly kind of like you thought this, but it's really that. And McGuire's idea is like, no, okay, take an idea like suppressing emotions is bad for relationships, that and the opposite are both true. And what he means by that, sometimes that's like empirically in the sense of moderators, but it's also, it has to do with how are you defining those terms? How are you sharpening them into an actual empirical point? What other assumptions are you bringing in? Um, uh, and and so you can so you can take one approach that's just like I'm going to come up with an idea, I'm going to frame it, and I'm going to do a study that shows it's true. You can take another approach, which is what McGuire advocates for, which is I'm going to take that idea. And both empirically by looking at moderators, but also theoretically, conceptually, by looking at what are the different ways we can define those terms? What are the different, I mean, that's why he calls it perspectivism. What are the different sort of perspectives on that kind of claim that we can take? And the really interesting stuff is going through that and figuring out like what are all the ways, you know, that's how you flesh out a theory. And I think that the, to me, the second approach is less sexy. You can't, it's harder to write books. It's more nuanced. It's harder, you know, whatever. To me, that's way more from a theory creativity perspective. That's way more interesting. But I think we often give credit to people who like make some really bold claim and then they stand there with their sword and swing at anyone who comes at them and show how smart they are by making everyone think that the claim is true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought another paper that you sent around, Sanjay, in preparation for the podcast is um, Nisbet's Guide for Reviewers, which I first saw when Katie Corker tweeted it, and I read it uh-huh. then, and it, it's amazing. I mean, so it's a satirical, yeah. like, yeah. here's how to be a reviewer, and then it, it lists all things he hates it when reviewers do, I think. And some of them I agree with, and some of them are pretty funny like you know he says sarcastically like bear in mind that every study has artifactual possibilities and that your prowess as a reviewer consists in adducing as many of them as possible and then later he says like tell them that they have to like rule out these alternative explanations if it would be extremely difficult to design research to test among the possibilities that's the author's problem after all who chose this line of research and he's mm-hmm. saying that sarcastically like yeah that's a wrong thing to do as a reviewer is to try to like shut shoot down their argument and tell them they have mm-hmm. to like rule out these alternatives which i can yeah. i do definitely see reviewers going way too far um yeah. but i just think it's funny in today's climate to read yeah. that yeah but it, i also when i was um when i was in graduate school mickey had me read the anti-muse letters um, and I was rereading them too before before the podcast. And so you guys noted that um, rigor gets sort of people see rigor as for the little people. And I also think that um, people see rigor as for the haters, you know. And so when I read um, the Anti Muse letters originally, um, I, I I mean I really I know why Mickey had me read them, and I still agree with this sentiment, which is that like you know, basically, like, don't be a hater, you know, like, that kills the people's, like, passion for doing research, and it, um, 
yeah, kills the desire to collaborate and share your research with other people. Um, and so, so I really liked the anti-muse letters for that reason. And when I was reading them this time, it's interesting because, yeah, I think this like rigor gets equated with haters, but one quote from the anti-muse letters is, um, that old hat is really the most useful accusation because it need never be proved. The clever sneerer knows that he or she need merely assert that an idea is an old one. Such an assertion will not be called into question one time in a hundred. On the rare occasion when the sneerer's bluff is called, it is child's play to merely generalize the putatively novel idea up to some suitably vague level of abstraction William and then James. assimilate it um, to some distant ancestor. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so it's like, actually, yeah, you know, you can also be like a, a hater by hating on anything that's not um, completely novel and right. totally counterintuitive. Yeah. Um, and I think that that kills um, a lot of research ideas that are that are good. And and I think here also our previous beliefs about um what we actually already know and what we don't know come into yeah. play as well, right? I think um, that's why there's so much disagreement on how much self-correction there already is in the system or yeah. how good we already are at keeping crazy ideas out or things that aren't rigorous out because peer review is so hard and reviewers do bring up like 19 different points and so on. So you feel like, okay, well, I've been put through the ringer. So obviously I've been held to this very high standard. And if, if it survives that, I have strong, rigorous evidence. Mm -hmm. So then like who who's who are these crazy people calling for more rigor than the 11 page single space decision letter I just got. And I'm yeah, in right. that position literally today. Um, so I'm sympathetic to the idea that reviewers and editors go way overboard, but I don't think they go overboard specifically on like assessing the strength of the evidence. And the, yeah, I agree. Like the amount yeah. and, and rigor of the evidence. I mean, there, there's so much, yeah, there, there, there's so much other shit that comes into reviewing and motivated reasoning and hindsight bias. I mean, I, I loved uh, Paul Eastwick's blog post about doing a registered report in an area where there's been a lot of disagreement and conflicting data. And he, you know, he talked about how, like, he published a, a paper a number of years ago in JPSP and got literally, I think it was like 1,700 new analyses that the reviewers yeah, yeah. made them do and because people didn't quite you know like different the reviewers just didn't want to reach the conclusions and when he did a registered report the focus was entirely on is this a good way to answer this question yeah. and i think that's often i think a lot of the you know the frustration with what used used to be and still to a large extent is like called critical thinking mm -hmm. which is actually like people grinding their axes because they don't like how your study came out mm -hmm. like i yeah i agree with you guys i totally get where that comes from and i think that there are ways that some of the reforms can actually make it better i mean i think registered mm -hmm. reports like this is just what you said earlier alexa like registered reports are a really great sandbox for creativity yeah. because your thinking is not hampered by knowing how it's going to turn out nor is the people reviewing it and you can really say is this a good idea before we see the data and if it is then nobody can say old hat or nobody can all these other things can after I, the fact well, i'm not nobody but the, the reviewers yeah. who are in the process can't say that i just not to turn this into a venting session but i just have to read this one <laughs> line from a review so i just got a rejection and the reviewer one uh, <laughs> ends their review by saying the paper presents good data good questions and good findings unfortunately it is missing a clear impact and like that's totally valid, and I think for this journal, it was JPSB. Like that's clearly a criteria I that they care got about. The same letter today or wow. yesterday. Is Maybe that exactly? I mean, not exactly the same, but really similar. Sentiment. Yeah, which like again, totally fine. Like, and I, this is consistent with what the journal advertises itself is caring yeah. about. So that's legitimate. But it's just a little jarring to me, and when I live in my little bubble, where like, okay, but like good data, good questions, good findings, like. I would be so excited if I got a paper to review that had that because in my mind, like <laughs> what not more that many, is there to science and not that? many yeah. papers meet that standard. Like it would be better if it also on top of that had like the impact or novelty or whatever. That would be even better. Sure, I don't disagree with that. Um, yeah, right. But like for me, that already puts if a paper really does, and I'm not saying ours necessarily does, but if a paper really does have that, that would put it in the top, you know, less than ten percent in my mind. Yeah. 
So I'm pretty happy with this rejection, I yeah. guess, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Same. Same. There's a journal in sociology called Sociological Science where they just make up or down decisions, and I'm so jealous of that journal. Like, I, I get that feedback in the review process is really helpful, and I have gotten really, really helpful feedback, and sometimes, like, I've, the paper's improved a lot and over several rounds of review. But so often, it's just a matter of taste, and it's like, you don't like it? Okay, cool. Yeah. Just tell me you don't like it. Like, mm-hmm. A lot of the other stuff comes down to just personal preference or... Yeah. And we're so, I mean, we're so smart that we fool ourselves into, like, it's, it's, you know, this this is where, like, John Height's, like, social intuitionist model morality, I think, is just, like, a general model for how people think, because it's, like, you have this taste reaction, and then we're these really smart, knowledgeable people that we come up with all these reasons to justify our taste mm-hmm. and it's a social justification so we're justifying it to other people and it's and then that gets called critical thinking and it gets called rigor and then rigor gets a bad name uh-huh. and it's like oh fuck that shit i was just like, reviewing a paper yeah. <laughs> for perspectives and because it's an opinion paper and it's an, basically an opinion journal and i, I like the paper and but i started my review kind of as a message for like the editor and other reviewers saying like given that this is an opinion piece in a perspectives journal, like I'm not going to quibble with the author's opinions. Like I'm going to try to focus on places where I think they could sharpen or clarify or things like that. And then I looked kind of weird because all the other reviewers liked the paper too. So it made it look like I disagreed with the authors, but really I was trying to signal like, in my opinion, it's not a reviewer's place, especially for this kind of paper to say like, I personally disagree with you. If I have counter arguments, it's one thing, but yeah. Yeah. I remember when I was preparing my job talk, um, Nick Rule gave me the piece of advice of just like ignore a bunch of the advice that you get. Um, <laughs> and I was like, oh, what a relief because I got so much feedback, you know, and it was mm-hmm. like, how do I incorporate all of this? And some of it competes. And he was just like, you know, just ignore like 90% of it and make the like 10% of changes that you think. Which is probably are, a good like, idea with about. reviews too. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if I think on, actually, if only like, we could get away with that. Yeah. To your point, um, to your point, Sanjay, about sort of us being smart people and um, and being especially good at sort of coming up with reasons for our gut reactions. Um, so I, I believe the research looking at the relationship between like IQ and motivated reasoning is that there there isn't much of a relationship at all. But sometimes it feels like maybe there's a negative relationship. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. if you if you're really smart, then you're really good at like coming up justifications for whatever you want to believe, mm-hmm. um, right? Or at least persuading maybe, other people. Yeah, I was gonna say maybe you don't. You may not do it more. But that might be but what the null correlation is. But but yeah, you do right. it better. Yeah, right. yeah, or you you sound smarter or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, I think that, I mean I think this is actually I, uh, uh, an interesting. I wasn't expecting to get here in this conversation, but I think this is. An interesting thing that I'm sort of taking away from this is how there's real rigor and then there's like the appearance of rigor, schmigger, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> and uh, um, and I think real rigor and creativity can have a really good symbiotic relationship. But I think also maybe what I'm, yeah, again, I think a sort of a, an appreciation for some of these things that we're kind of beating up on a little bit, whether it's Baumeister or Nisbet or other things is like where that's coming from, which is how things done in the name of rigor or critical thinking um, have been used to hamper creativity. And I think that's yeah, like going that's forward point. for people who advocate for open science, for reproducibility, for better methods, for all that, is to, to make sure that I think to a lot of people, and this does get said certainly, um, but I think making sure we're both saying and also in how we're implementing these things that like rigor is actually in support of creativity, like real rigor is in support of creativity. Rigor can create freedom. Like some of these reforms like registered reports can create freedom to be more creative. What they, what they're doing is they're they're or at least they, they don't hamper it. Right. What they're doing is they're, they're going to sort out the different ideas and they're going to play a role. Um, but that the sort of, the bad rigor, the the fake rigor is maybe the real enemy. Yeah. yeah, right. And I think for anybody who's wondering how I can be like for creativity, but also want to lower alpha to 0.005, I would say like <laughs> that having that middle category to me is pro creativity is to say, look, you can 
just be honest that it's unclear. It's the same idea as behind yeah. pre-registration is then you can just be honest when something's exploratory or wasn't predicted. That's okay. It's just less sure. And so by yeah. giving labels, having a convention for that, it opens up and liberates people. I'm, I'll stop there because I reviewed a paper that makes this argument really well. Hopefully it'll be up in, as a preprint soon. Um, that actually, yeah, like these reforms are liberating and, and increase people's freedom and creativity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But I, but your point and, is really yeah. good, Sanjay, that there have been arguments in the name of rigor that have had a negative impact on on creativity. So we, it's a good thing to be aware of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I, that's always fun when we like get somewhere like <laughs> that I wasn't expecting going in. Like I had all my thoughts about creativity and rigor before we started this. I knew mm-hmm. what I was going to think, but that, uh, yeah, that was, that was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to cool. listening to those five minutes that I missed in the middle. Alexa's <laughs> <laughs> uh, not going to listen to this. Yeah. Right talk, so. yeah. Awesome. I don't listen well, to podcasts that involve some Yeah. Yeah. This is, are we, are we wrapped? Are we good? Yeah. I think so. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to The Black Goat, and uh, we will talk to you next time.